0: This is a download from Newstalk 106 to 108. To download other programmes or for more information, go to newstalk.ie.
1: Good morning, it's Holy Week, the week when women feature most in the story of Jesus. Mary Magdalene was the first person to see him resurrected, and in some texts Magdalene was known as the Apostle's Apostle. So, why was she sidelined and why to this day, in an era when there's a drastic shortage of priests, are women still being sidelined in the Catholic Church? Women in the Church, past and present. In studio, Gina Menzies is a theologian and lecturer in medical ethics at the Royal College of Surgeons. Margaret Daly Denton is an adjunct lecturer in the Department of Religions and Theology at Trinity College. And Joy Powell is a healthcare chaplain and also a member of Women's Spirit Ireland. Now, Gina, I want to start with you, please. Whenever the subject of women's role in the church comes up, the argument for tradition and what Jesus intended for men and women is put forward. And that's why I really want to talk about Mary Magdalene and her highly disputed role in Jesus's life. And there are so many versions of her story. Will you start by telling me what's in the gospel? What's the official story? Because
2: all we ever think of is prostitute. Exactly. And, you know, the four gospels all uh, mention Mary of Magdala, which is where she came from, And I mean, the first thing I really want to say is there isn't a single line in any of the Gospels which says she was a prostitute, not a single line. So we have to sort of excavate it. How did that come to be the case? Um, In fact, in all the Gospels, she has a very, very prominent role. Um, And if you think of today is Holy Saturday, if you think of the resurrection story, who was there at the resurrection in every single Gospel Mary Magdalene was the one who was the first really witness of the resurrection. So does that mean she was an important person? Well, absolutely does. But you know how many people who are who are listening, who have been brought up in traditional Christianity, um, understand that she wasn't a prostitute. What seemed to have happened was um, there are lines in the gospel where it says Jesus uh, healed her and healed her of demons. And I said that to somebody this morning even, and she said, oh, that meant she was a prostitute. And I said, well, there were a number of healings of demons in, in the Gospels. And I said, none of the men were deemed prostitutes. And, you know, scriptural scholars, really what they have concluded from the healing of the demons was that there was some possibly mental illness. Some people suggest it might have been epilepsy, but prostitution, it absolutely was not. So how did we get to that place? Well, it seems that some pope, I think it was Gregory in the sixth century, um, he gave a homily where he made this woman a prostitute. And there is one, I suppose, problematic about some of the Gospels in that there are a number of Marys. And, you know, this Mary then became the one who washed Jesus' feet, who wiped his feet with her hair. And actually, again, the Gospels, that is actually a different Mary. But, you know, Mary was uh, Mary of Magdalene was absolutely preeminent among the apostles. And, you know, she actually was probably a model of discipleship. And again, if you study the Gospels, particularly Mark and John, you realise that women were actually the models of discipleship. Say just, just Mark's Gospel. The men in Mark's Gospel are kind of a sorry lot. Um, they don't believe Jesus. They don't understand him. They betray him. None of the women do that. And the same actually in John's Gospels and, and in Luke's Gospel, where women have a really, they are strong women in the Gospels. But, you know, the question is how many people actually know that and how often has that been communicated to Christians? So,
1: Joy Powell, I think you're a fan of Mark's Gospel. So If it's so clear that this was never said, where did it come from? What, six centuries later it was added in that she was a prostitute?
3: Well, the scholar Rosemary Radford Ruther says that it was a false reading into the New Testament texts. So we're familiar with exegesis where we take something from the text. This is a reading into the text and a wrong false reading. And why do you think it was done? I suppose I believe that... She got confused with the woman, as Gina said, who anointed Jesus' feet. Who She isn't named. That woman isn't named. So where the Mary came from there, I don't know. The original version has nothing to do with a woman who's a sinner. She gets confused with the woman taken in adultery.
1: Well, I suppose the obvious theory might be that uh, they wanted to paint her as a prostitute and as something less than the men because they were threatened by her preeminent position in the, the life of Jesus.
3: Possibly. And I suppose I agree with Gina and so does Mary T. Malone, who is an Irish scholar, who says that after the betrayal of Jesus and his death and the death of Judas, the apostles gathered and they set out requirements for apostleship. They had to vote for to replace Judas. You find that in the Acts of the Apostles. These requirements included the following. You had to be a follower of Jesus during his public ministry. You had to be a witness to the resurrection and subsequently follow the command to proclaim the good news, Jesus risen from the dead. So Mary T Malone says there's a substantial case that can be made that women were the only ones who actually fulfilled those Mm. requirements because they are the only unbroken witnesses right to the very end of Jesus life. Mark's Gospel, particularly all Gospels, the four Gospels would uh, maintain that the men abandoned Jesus at that time, but the women stood firm. Margaret mm. Daly-Denton,
1: there are other versions um, of her life. Um, there are these the Gnostic Gospels, maybe yes. you tell us something about them. And then there's the whole version of her life that ended up in the Da Vinci Code. So could you take <laughs> us through those other versions of well, her life?
4: Well, yes, um, she, she certainly appears in um, what we call Gnostic texts. These are people who were believers in Jesus and produced some texts that were actually only found at the end of the 19th century in Egypt. Um, there's one called the Gospel of Mary, which is supposedly attributed to her. But we need to remember that in the ancient world, they were very relaxed about the attribution of writing. You know, so, so it's, it's obviously composed by somebody else, but attributed to her. In that, she's, she comes through as especially beloved to Jesus and that, she, that he gave her kind of special revelations that he didn't give to to other disciples. There's, there's another a second to third century text called the Gospel of Philip, which uh, says that Mary was a, a close companion of Jesus and that he frequently used to kiss her. And there's the Gospel of Thomas, uh, which is actually quite an early text. It it um, it's actually quite valuable for studying the New Testament because it has a lot in common with the New Testament. It's not really a story; it's just a collection of sayings. But there's a very strange saying there where the disciples say to Jesus, "What? What about Mary Magdalene? What about her?" And Jesus says, "Well, she will become male, and then you know she will be kind of like you, and therefore she'll be fully accepted." It's a very strange kind of kind of notion. And then um, there are, there's another one called Pistis Sophia, which is probably a third century text. And that contains a lot of dialogues between Jesus and Mary Magdalene. So that's kind of the what we call the apocryphal material. And then
1: I know yeah. that now there's a huge interest in the life of Mary Magdalene. In France, oh, yeah. and that a lot of people yeah. go on tours yeah. of sites where she yeah. is alleged to have lived, yeah. and there was something about a cave where she stayed for thirty years, yeah. and I think that's where this Da Vinci Code may have started yeah. off. Will you tell me about that?
4: Um, I'll tell you the little the little <laughs> that I that I know about it. Really, the idea that she was a prostitute gave gave rise to the idea that she spent the rest of her life in repentance in the desert. And she was probably confused with another Mary. There was a Saint Mary of Egypt um, who was supposed to have led a very sort of strict hermit life doing penance in the desert. So um, you often find in Western religious art that Mary is depicted. She's actually naked, but she has very, very long hair that covers all her her nice womanly parts, <laughs> and she's supposed to be, um, you know, re- living her life in repentance. And what's the but significance
1: then... of the hair? Because it well, is dramatic it, it, yeah. in paintings. Well, yeah. you see,
4: for a woman in, in, in the ancient world, for a woman to have her hair loose, was it was either a sign of mourning or of being very sexually relaxed. You know, as as we could understand, people would let their hair down,
0: <laughs> yeah, <laughs>
4: <laughs> when they have sex. Um, so um, you know, it was a sign of sexual promiscuity, really. Uh, you know, but it, it's interesting. You don't find that in the Eastern branch mm. of of Christianity. There, Mary is always treated with tremendous dignity and respect, mm. and she's venerated as one of the myrrh bearing women. Myrrh is the precious perfumed. That the women brought to the tomb. Isn't you know, that to, interesting that yes, it's divergent it's Western, between the two? It's only in the Western thing, but you know, a famous, a famous Irish biblical scholar, Sean Frayne, You know, a lot of people would know his name. Who died just a couple of years ago? Um, he used to have a great saying that the religious imagination abhors a vacuum. You see, and so people knew so little about her. And the the other that you know, that they kind of created stories. But the other thing we need to remember too is that people didn't have the kind of access to the Bible that we have. I mean, coming into the Middle Ages, the scriptures were in Latin, which most people no longer understood, and a copy of the Bible was a handwritten manuscript, tremendously valuable. Very few people had them. So
1: tell me about this golden, this golden this yeah. golden legend. Well
4: this bishop in Genoa in the thirteenth century is supposed to have written this thing called The Golden Legend and that actually tells of it's interesting because it's Mary Magdalene Martha and Lazarus now this is confusing Mary Magdalene with Mary of Bethany you know in John's Gospel Mm -hmm. but they continued to be believers in Jesus apparently and they were persecuted and they were put into a ship and set adrift and they landed in Marseille you see and uh, then they they were they kind of became famous there and were venerated as very holy people and uh, it, I mean it's very interesting the whole the whole legend because it describes how they had they owned castles on the outskirts of Jerusalem you know because this is the medieval mind that um, Lazarus was a knight in in, in the story you know. Um, so anyway, they were, they were venerated there, and the legend really consists mainly of all the miracles that were performed by the, by the intercession of Mary Magdalene. And is her and body so,
1: supposed to have been buried there?
4: Apparently, but I don't, I don't really know anything about that. But you see, in the Middle Ages, Christian centres where there were big churches were very anxious to attract pilgrims. And, uh, you know, like Veselay is an example, that uh, wonderful church there that was on the pilgrimage route uh, of the Camino, you know, to Santiago de yeah, Santiago, yeah. Compostela. A very popular yeah, pilgrimage that, that route church, today. Yeah, well, that church was dedicated to Mary Magdalene, you know. And, um, and, yeah, and there there are loads of, yeah.
2: of, Magdalene College, you know, in Oxford. Yeah, but, but the right, other thing yeah. I think is, is interesting, Margaret there refers to the re- religious imagination. And look what happened because Mary Magdalene was portrayed and, I, and Margaret is right because people didn't have access to it. It was the story that was portrayed that she was the prostitute. And just think, relate that to Ireland. Magdalene laundries, yes. fallen yes. women. Yeah. Where were yeah. loose women sent? They were sent to the Magdalene home because yes. Magdala was the fallen woman. I mean, when you yeah. think of a misunderstanding, how it has been used over and oh, against yeah, women. And, yeah. and the imagination is interesting because, I mean, every art gallery will have these magnificent pictures of Mary Magdalene naked with, with hair flowing. Yeah. And they, yeah. they suggest that she was the one who washed the feet, which as far as we can see from the evidence, it wasn't her. It was somebody, somebody else. But you also think of other pieces of art. And I always think of The Last Supper, uh, Leonardo da Vinci, the, the mm-hmm. iconic fresco which has become utterly kind of the stable diet of those who argue against the ordination of women. I mean, that was in the 15th, 16th century, I think it was the 15th century. But that wasn't what happened at the Last Supper. The evidence of the Last Supper, particularly I think in Luke, is it was a Passover if it was a Passover, remember, Jesus lived and died a Jew. Everybody in the Gospels is Jewish, for starters. So they had the Passover feast. And what happened at the Passover feast? There were men, women, children, probably cats and dogs. You know, everybody was involved in it. And yet this has been established in our minds that Jesus sat around this table with the 12 and the one who came over and betrayed him. So, you know, that notion of a, of a misrepresentation has had huge consequences for women in the church. Margaret, well,
4: yes well you see that hinges on the on a, a word that's <laughs> already come into our conversation which is the word apostle. The word apostle literally means someone sent. That's that's what it means. Now according to the gospels of Matthew Mark and Luke which we call the synoptic mm-hmm. gospels um, Jesus chose 12 men and he called them sent ones or apostles and they they were a kind of a an inner circle. Now, they really were intended to be an inclusive symbol of the 12 tribes of Israel, you know, but in later perception of the thing, they became, you know, the 12 men that were. As later, mm. as later theology would say, ordained by Jesus, you know, but but uh, the gospel ordained of oh exactly sure that that's exactly clearly ordained yeah, well that's nobody. what I'm saying in later theology yeah. putting it in inverted commas, um but um in in the gospel according to John it's really interesting because this inner circle of twelve men just doesn't figure in the story, mm. you know Jesus is always with disciples yes. which would have to be a group of men and women. And now a lot of people think that Hippolytus, who lived in the third century and gave the title Apostle of the Apostles to Mary Magdalene, a lot You've of people of praise yeah. a lot of people praise Hippolytus for that. but actually I have a a, a little crow to pluck with oh, Hippolytus over yes. that because you see in John's Gospel, Jesus appears to Mary Magdalene and she goes to all the disciples, mm-hmm. whereas in the others, especially in Luke, It's a kind of, um, if you like, Jesus meets this distressed woman and consoles her. Or it's a group of women, in fact, and the others, you know. And then they go and tell the 12 men. And then it's the 12 men that do all the kind of preaching and converting.
1: So, Joy, in terms of evidence then, you know, is there a legitimate academic argument that the evidence from these all? both from the Gospels themselves as we know them and these alternative Gospels, you know, that Mary Magdalene was the significant person who had every right to be treated as an equal, if not superior to the 12 apostles as we know them.
3: I suppose I'm holding Mary T. Malone's take on it. You know, she was the first witness to the resurrection. She meets all the criteria that the men in the Acts of the Apostles have laid down for apostleship. So for me, absolutely, she holds line equal to Peter. Um, and I suppose just on that one, yeah. we're talking about the Gnostic Gospels and the, the Gospel of Mary Magdalene and what Rosemary Radford-Ruther says about her, that a conflict arose with Peter, who tries to deny her apostolic authority, that the Gnostic Gospels vindicate her role and in doing so also vindicate the equal participation of women in leadership in the communities.
1: OK, <laughs> actually I have to take one quick break and when I come back I'm going to be talking to Canon Ginny Kinnerley from the Church of Ireland about the history of their ordination of women priests.
0: Talking Point on News Talk 106 to 108.
1: Welcome back to Talking Point. We're talking about the history of women in the church from Mary Magdalene right up to the present day and in studio with me are Gina Menzies, theologian and lecturer in medical ethics at the Royal College of Surgeons Margaret Daly Denton, adjunct lecturer in the Department of Religions and Theology at Trinity College Dublin and Joy Powell who's a healthcare chaplain. Earlier I spoke to Ginny Kinnerley. She was one of the first women to be ordained into the Church of Ireland and I asked her to tell me about the history of women's ordination in that church.
0: Well in 1976 um, there was a motion put to General Synod to the effect that there was no theological objection to the ordination of women to the priesthood. This was a very new thing. We had a very strong Archbishop, Archbishop Buchanan in Dublin who believed in this and who had already recruited some women lay readers, that is women who can preach and lead services but are not ordained as such. They can do everything except the sacramental things. He'd already done that and he wanted to push things further And the church agreed at a big general synod up in Christchurch Cathedral in 1976 that there was no theological objection. But then the sociological objections came in, and the historical objections, and the church unity objections, and the um, gut-feeling objections, you know. So it took until 1984 for them to agree that women could be ordained to the diaconate. There was a lot of fuss about that, which was very painful. And then it took until 1988 for them to bring in something about priesthood, which finally came through all the hoops by 1990.
1: So when was the first woman ordained into the priesthood in Ireland?
0: I think it would have been June 1990. There were two women ordained in Belfast by Bishop Sam Points, who was a very strong advocate of the ordination of women, and he was determined to be first in the history books, and then Bishop Roy Walk ordained a woman called Janet Catterall, who is still in ministry in County Monaghan. And then I was ordained in Christchurch Cathedral in October by Donald Caird, who was the Archbishop of Dublin, lovely, lovely man, but a little nervous about ordaining women and about the effect it would have on the relationship between the Church of England and the Church of Ireland, because the Church of England was still not ordaining women.
1: So Ireland was ahead of England. We
0: were two years ahead of England.
1: You said, you know, the theological objection was lifted, but then there were the sociological objections. Mm. Was it damaging to the church to have such a divisive debate? And and has it healed now?
0: I don't think it was damaging, but it was necessary that we had this discussion. Now, I was part of a group which we, we put together in the Church of Ireland around the early 80s called the Women's Ministry Group in the Church of Ireland. And we were determined... First to educate ourselves thoroughly on the, the biblical and theological issues and then to dialogue with the people who had fears about it. And there was a group called the Concerned Clergy who were the men who were very worried about it. And we would have meetings with them. And
1: What were they worried about?
0: That's very hard to say and it's not really for me to say but I think there was a sort of gut feeling. This has always been a boys' club, you know. Men are superior to women. After all, Adam was created first, and and Eve let down the whole side with the serpent and all that, and we really can't be letting this in, you know. There may have been a little bit of fear also that there would be some rather good women who would put the men on their marks. I, I, I don't know. I don't know. But there was the ecumenical argument. Not only were we putting ourselves different from the Church of England, although we would have been lining up with America and New Zealand and various places like that. China was the first one. But there was the feeling that we would be out of step with the Roman Catholic Church, and of course the argument there was: we're already out of step with the Roman Catholic Church. That's they the already point. don't exercise, <laughs> They don't already don't recognise our orders. And uh, who ever said that the Holy Spirit achieved unanimity in, in the entire world? You know, people go step by step in their own way.
1: Now, uh, of course, the Church um, of Ireland and England was always different from the Roman Catholic Church in the sense that the priests could marry. And on a purely practical level, I often wondered, you know, that some parishes get it difficult enough to support a single man. And just financially, how does it work if you have to support a family? Because they would need a different kind of security um, in terms of living than a single man might. That's a very interesting point. You know, we have
0: always managed on a fairly low amount of money. Mm -hmm. We're given a house. We're given a living wage. But nobody is going to be getting rich on it. I think it's just a matter of the structures becoming accustomed to it, but it is very stressful at the moment financially supporting our clergy, which is why we are going to be more and more dependent on non-stipendiary clergy, particularly country parishes where there are really not enough people to keep the roof on the church. We have all the old churches, of course, you know, and support somebody. When I was in parish ministry, which I did for 11, 12 years, I had four churches to look after. Now, you can't look after much more than that as one person, but there are groups now getting even bigger than that.
1: I wonder, maybe, can it be turned to the church's advantage in that if it's a married couple, one half can have a job in the secular world that might pay that enables the other one to do their vocational work?
0: That does happen, both ways round, both Mm. ways round. I mean, women used to be the unpaid curates in the Church of Ireland, until we grew up and and realised that women also had a life and they didn't have to be just baking scones and running the mother's union.
1: As the Church of Ireland is so much ahead of the Roman Catholic Mm -hmm. Church on this issue, do you think it is all the richer for having women as priests?
0: Much, much richer. And there's a theological point here. God created human beings, male and female, in his image. In his image means there is both male and female in God. There is both male and female in the people of God. Why should only half of humanity be representing supposedly the whole of humanity before a God who they insist on calling male, 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 you know? (laughs) So, of course, it's much richer. But at the same time, I think we have to not fall into the trap of binary genderism. The best male clergy always have a good dose of the feminine sensitivity in their nature, and the best women clergy always have certain characteristics, which we would think of as male, like leadership qualities, clear thinking, certain amount of courage, you know, you need both.
1: And that was Canon Ginny Kinnerly. Uh, Many thanks for joining us. Gina Menzies, just going back to the theological argument, you know, and if it is so strong that there should be and perfectly entitled to be women priests. And yet if for 2000 years, you know, the church has made this concerted effort to do the women in and this crazy story about Mary Magdalene and the prostitution and all that. uh, Someone said to me yesterday, but why would women want to be priests in this kind of church?
2: Well, that's actually a fair point. There aren't many women um, who feel they have a call to be a priest in the church that is currently constituted. I suppose I'm talking about the Roman Catholic Church. That being said, I certainly know two very strong women who really feel they are called to minister and they're they are they're being excluded. Um, so I think that is a fair point. I think where we are now in relation to ordination in, in the Christian churches is really that the whole issue of ministry, I think we need to start mm-hmm. perhaps with the issue of ministry. How do we understand ministry? And within our understanding of ministry: there is the ordained minister. There are many other variations of ministry. And again, if you go back to the Gospels and you recognise the role of discipleship, which is, I think, as Margaret was saying, was preeminent more so than the notion of the the apostles. That discipleship meant sort of following Jesus, and following is is, is a, an English word that translates what's in the Bible, but it's much stronger than that. It's it's it, it has a greater connotation of serving. So in the Gospels, you have many, many women who were serving Jesus. They were extraordinary women because go back to the Judaic world that they lived in. A woman really couldn't be there um, in a public place without being with a male. Um, there were huge constrictions in general on, on a women, even in the Gentile world and in the Roman world where the later gospel was was written, that they could do nothing without sort of a male. And yet you have this person of Jesus who was utterly countercultural who included women in all his ministry, Uh, the Gospel of John begins Mm -hmm. and ends Mm -hmm. with women in ministry. Mm -hmm. So I think you need to look at the whole understanding of ministry Um, within the Catholic Church. It is interesting. I'm not sure the date, but I think in about the 1980 something, the Vatican itself set up a commission because it was a bubbling issue uh, to sort of analyze it, to investigate what the evidence was for or against the ordination of women. And they actually came to at least a minimum position. I would contend that had they read the Gospels correctly, they would have reached an entirely different position. But they actually admitted that there wasn't any evidence which would say that you could exclude women from ministry. And I kind of do kind of repeat because a lot of commentary, populist commentary would say, oh, Jesus ordained 12 women. Actually, you have to remember, he actually ordained nobody, Mm. nobody. But he included women very, very strongly in his discipleship.
1: Margaret, did you
2: want yeah. to
4: get in on that point? Well, yeah, I, I think at the root of this negativity towards the idea is, is a particular understanding of what Christians call the Eucharist or the Mass or the Holy Communion, mm-hmm. uh, the ritual meal, you know, uh, which kind of defines Christianity in many ways. This goes way, way back, particularly to the Middle Ages, where it was no longer a meal that people shared. I mean, initially, one of the defining things about Jesus was that he he invited people to share his table. Um, he was accused of being a glutton and a drunkard, uh, and he invited unacceptable people to share at table. And this is the one thing that his followers seemed to want to continue doing after he died and, and was raised and left them. They still wanted to come together and share meals and to remember him through that. But like by the Middle Ages, the Holy Communion meal had become utterly clericalized. It had become an esoteric ritual performed by clergy miles away from the people who were, you know, when you think of the Gothic cathedrals, nobody could see what was happening. And a whole distorted understanding of that Christian ritual meal took over, where the emphasis was on the bread and wine being changed into the body and blood of Christ. And the the power of the priest to do that, and a very distorted understanding of of ordained ministry, mm-hmm. in which the priest was seen as almost kind of modelling Jesus or re- replication history, yeah. Jesus. And so, if you think that way about the Christian ritual meal, you'll find yourself saying, "Well, it has to be a man," I, and, did, and that's so, very deep just, in people still, I think.
2: Gina, you yeah, wanted to no, make. I was just point. going to say. Uh, I mean, Mark, with that sort of gave a great exposition of the Middle Ages and how it all went pear-shaped. But I think if you go back, and we started with the Gospels, and I think if you go back to the first century following the Gospels, remember, there were no churches. These were groups, these were, were Jewish people who, who were now buying into the Jesus, if you like, message. They were the Jesus community. I think Sean Frayne always referred to the Jesus community, which, which makes so much sense. And mm-hmm. they wanted to celebrate, to commemorate the Last Supper, the, the meal. And where did they do it? The evidence, absolutely, from a, a very brilliant woman scho- scriptural scholar, Elizabeth Schussler Fiorenza, yeah. is that they did it in house churches. Yeah. So they did it in homes. And who presided over those homes? You know, who facilitated, who organized it? Women. So that yeah. the idea of, of the Eucharist in the first century was actually celebrated in houses, presided over By women. And then, you know, we we get this extraordinary sort of skewed tradition that developed probably sort of in, in the early, later Middle Ages where it all changed and it became this kind of extraordinary ritual that had to be presided over by a male. Joy, I mean, you're a healthcare chaplain. Yeah. Do you see that as A, a
1: ministry? I do. And B, a ministry that is sufficient for you as a woman? involved in the church if you know what I mean it is
3: for me but like Gina you know I believe there are women who feel the Holy Spirit is calling them to a different kind of ordained ministry and
1: to answer that question about why would they want to be in this church are we would we not be better off either joining the Church of Ireland or doing something completely different like your work because you would work in an environment where it's not just about Catholics it would be about yeah, all yeah. your we cover
3: yeah, yeah. we cover all faiths and none yeah yeah um, I suppose I kind of see it as if it becomes, you know, you're right. I don't see it as a right. I see it as if God is, as I said earlier, you know, if all those characters of, of, of God are in people, then Christ resides in us. So in persona Christi to me doesn't necessarily mean that you've got to be a man. Most theology today looks at what is our spirit, what is spirituality. And for me as a Roman Catholic, certainly the image of God you know, I am made in the Im- I as a woman am made in the image and likeness of God. You know, I kind of rest my case on that one. Um, and actually, on that, I want to go now to
1: Sarah MacDonald. She's a journalist specialising in religious affairs. And I asked her why apparently we're not supposed to be talking about this at all.
5: That goes back to an apostolic letter that was issued by Pope John Paul II, now Saint Pope John Paul II. It was called Ordinatio Sacerdotalis. And is focused on why the priesthood is reserved to men alone. And at the end Pope declared that the Church has no authority whatsoever to confer priestly ordination on women. And what he said, which has direct bearing on what you asked me about, is that this judgment was to be definitively held by all the Church's faithful. Now up to that point there had been discussion, I mean there were theologians like Lavinia Byrne to name just one, who had been writing on women's ordination, principalmente because women were ordained to the priesthood in the Church of England in 1992, I think it was. So there was discussion within the Christian community in Britain, as well as in America and in Ireland, about this. And I suppose there was a certain nervousness within uh, Roman Catholicism that it would have a domino effect. So the Pope then came out with this in 1994, and it, it was quite shocking to a lot of people because it was essentially a clamp on any discussion.
1: And what is the church afraid of, the church hierarchy afraid of?
5: That's a really good question and it's something that there will be a number of different reasons why they will be fearful of this. One is, you know, the traditional teaching for over 2,000 years is that, you know, God became male and Christ instituted the priesthood. So, the Church has always seen Christ's maleness as essential to the role. So it would be those overturned in 2012 dogma. I mean, it's in the canon law of the Church, the Catechism of the Church, in Church documents like John Paul II's teaching. You know, some people would argue that Jesus, is, when he chose the 12 apostles, he didn't choose any women. And even when Judas betrayed him and Jesus had died and been resurrected, I mean, the Church would say the apostles came together to choose a successor to Judas and they chose another man. They didn't choose a woman.
1: Now, in Western society, we have had moral progress and we've moved on and we see that sometimes the things that were in scripture, you know, were interpreted at the time and of the time and we're able to move on from that. You know, is there not a recognition of that from Rome that we've just moved on?
5: I think there is increasing recognition that women are indispensable to society and also to church and faith. There are studies that show that more women attend masses and religious services. So they realise that if they don't bring or draw women in and make them feel more included and less like second-class citizens, that the very core of their faithful are likely to become increasingly disillusioned. The problem is that the church is not... something that moves quickly and it doesn't change quickly. It has this whole body of theology and dogma which says no to women priests. So even though someone like Francis has come in and he's very much seen as a breath of fresh air. The Francis effect just hasn't been felt on the issue of women's ordination. He has very much said that he wants a more incisive female presence in the church, but he has ruled out looking at women's ordination. And I think that's a sign of how thorny and difficult it is. Potentially, some people say it could bring schism within the church. And you've only to look to the Church of England, what happened there recently in the last few years when they went to to introduce women bishops. It basically precipitated this ordinariate, which is Anglicans that were unhappy with women bishops, coming over to Rome.
1: And just on that too, what impact does the fact that the Catholic Church is such a global church and that you're dealing with countries and continents, you know, in South America, in Africa, in the Far East, that maybe aren't as progressive as Europe is?
5: Well, sometimes... The Church is seen as very Eurocentric, and certainly within Europe and the Western world, this is a key issue for women. But a little bit like when the uh, Synod on the Family was taking place, the issues that were very pertinent to European Catholics, communion for the divorced and remarried, weren't so important to, say, Catholic families in other parts of the world. And things like polygamy would be seen as far more serious within an African context. So again, we do have to realise that the church is actually, the numbers are growing, even though quite often we see it as a story of decline all the time. That's within a European context. Within the context of Africa and Asia and Latin America, it is growing. I think feminism wouldn't necessarily be an argument that is seen as, as cogent within those contexts as it is within Europe or the
1: Western world. So what do you think it will happen to address the shortage of priests in the European church? Will it be be reverse missionaries priests coming from uh, you know Africa or South America will it be giving women some kind of increased role like into some kind of diaconate role or will it be allowing male priests to marry
5: Yeah, it could actually be all of those. I mean, the issue is quite serious. We know that a recent study in relation to the the Archdiocese of Dublin said the decline in priest numbers could be up to 70% by 2030, you know, from 369 down to 144. So it's really serious within the the Western world. So such a serious situation means change is inevitable. But what that change is... I would say there would be more of an appetite within the church to consider a married priesthood and also perhaps women deacons. But I think the ordination of women is a long way off. And one of the factors that doesn't always get a look into the debate is that ties are growing between Roman Catholicism and the Orthodox traditions. We saw Pope Francis meeting the Russian patriarch in Cuba a couple of months ago, and it was a very, very big thing. There is very little appetite within the Orthodox tradition for women priests.
1: Okay, Gina Menzies. Actually, I have to take one quick break and we'll be back with more after these.
0: Talking Point on News Talk 106 to 108.
1: And welcome back to Talking Point. We're talking about women in the church uh, this morning. And why would women want to be in the church? In studio with me are Gina Menzies, theologian and lecturer in medical ethics at the Royal College of Surgeons. Margaret Daly Denton is adjunct lecturer in the Department of Religions and Theology, Trinity College. And Joy Powell is a healthcare chaplain. Uh, Margaret, you wanted to come back in on a point there that Gina was making. Well, just following
4: from what Gina was saying about the the early believers in Jesus meeting in groups and people's houses... um, uh, we, we we could think for example of the communities that paul wrote to and at the le- at the end of his letter to the romans he he sends greetings to a, a whole lot of people and he he greets two people um andronicus and junia yes. and they they seem to be um Probably a married couple, which was quite common. Uh, we know of several other examples of of married couples who were Christian minis- ministers, but he says uh, greet them. He says he says they are kinspeople of his, relatives of his, and fellow prisoners, and he also says they are people of note among the apostles. You see, now um, up until quite recently. Everybody assumed that this woman Unia, must be a man yes. called Unias. Yes. 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 you know. Uh, yeah, well, it it was it it is a possible translation, but it certainly shows translators' bias that if somebody is a fellow apostle of Paul's, it has to be a man, you know. So this is one of the the kind of little secrets about women that are hidden in the text and that feminist scholarship has I has want kind to of ask uncovered.
1: You something else, Margaret, because this mm. is. I suppose a lot of what you do it's the human compulsion to seek meaning in things and in say relics like about Mary Magdalene that Mm. might be in Marseille or um, Saint James in Santiago that's the center of this huge pilgrimage why do you think we insist on divining some kind of meaning out of all of this that we can't just accept it's some kind of story and get on with things
5: uh, sorry <laughs> or maybe Gina wants I, I, I to have a crack
2: I, I love the, the the whole notion of stories and of narrative because I think yeah. we are almost as people across the world we are constituted to tell stories and I think Irish people are particularly good at that but we tell stories I think to, to seek understanding um, so I think that's where it comes from I don't think we ever have a story where we don't want to try and, and understand meaning And what do you say to people that we use these bible stories and whether one gospel
1: is more significant than another to actually distort our understanding of the world that none of this is in any way rational
2: Well I well, I I do I do think I think within the gospels there is there's is huge meaning and I think that's the task, if you like, uh, mm. that we have is to extrapolate the meaning uh, and yes, we understand it now in a different context, but there are kind of consistencies. If you look at, again women keep appearing, they're all mm-hmm. over the gospel mm-hmm. Like before I studied mm-hmm. theology, yeah. I would have been quite unaware of Didn't the dominance there. of women because nobody ever pointed it out to me. And Joy, what's your view I on I suppose that?
3: I'm looking at feminist scholarship, if you're looking for real leadership in the church today it comes through the line of women like Elizabeth shusley Ferenza, who Gina mentioned um, our own Mary Tima Malone, Rosemary Radford Ruther. We have a lovely Dominican here called Celine Mangan, who's a wonderful Scripture scholar, and um, Margaret here beside me, and Gina also. But just to say that for me, and I know, and I'm quoting a Father Richard Rohr, a, a, a lovely Franciscan man, who says that the Bible is an extraordinary, is extraordinary because it legitimizes the people at the bottom, the rejected son, the barren woman Particularly, okay, the sinner, the leper, the outsider—always, they're the ones chosen by God in the stories of the Bible. And we were talking about stories, okay? From powerlessness, God creates a new kind of power. Um, There's a constant pattern in the Hebrew scriptures. We know the stigma attached to being a barren woman in the life of the Jewish women of of that time, and yet we see God constantly showing them favor. So you'll find that in in the story of Rachel and Sarah and Hannah. um, so I suppose for me, you know, the real leadership for me is among the women theologians who are, you know, reminding us of where to find the women and putting them up there as equals to the men in the scriptures. But when it's such a battle, Margaret, to
1: do what apparently uh, was supposed to have been done in the Bible, why why do women keep persisting in this fight within the church? Are we not better off just going setting up our own one? <laughs>
4: <laughs> well I think I think you're talking from the perspective of the Roman Catholic Church mm. and of course I mean women's ministry is is fully accepted now in w- many other strands of of, of, of Christianity uh, certainly it would be the Roman Catholic Church and the Eastern the Orthodox churches, mm. that that you know would not have that and same. And do you see openness? any sign yeah. that
1: there'll be a movement um, in the direction of women priests? I haven't th- the
4: slightest doubt. I, I mean, I I was just actually thinking uh, how most people who are listening to us today will have seen the movie Suffragette, that came out recently. You know, um, New Zealand, my country, was the first to grant uni- universal suffrage to women in eighteen ninety three. Ireland didn't do it until 1918 uh, you know but uh, but when you look at the timeline of the granting of women's suffrage you can actually see to use um, somebody else's image the dominoes falling uh, the domino effect and for me the admission of women to full participation in all levels of Christian ministry is as is as obvious as that and and is as certain to come as that. It's only a matter of time. She sort of linked yeah.
2: that even to women entering third level education. Well, exactly, that was for yeah. both for so yeah. for exactly, for so long. Yeah. So I think, you know, we live in a century and the last century as well where, where women have suddenly, I suppose, found their voices and, and have, have embarked on, on different on different journeys. So I think it's not just, so I think Margaret is right, there's always an inevitability about it. It may not be in our lifetime, but there is inevitability about the path that women are going on. I just wanted to say as well that we have the idea that the
4: Gospels bring us right back sort of to the time of Jesus. And in a sense they do, but in another sense, we need to remember that they didn't actually start a fine written form until at least three decades, four decades, five decades. You know, the Gospel of John is late first century. People are now uh, saying that the composition of Luke and Acts goes into the second century. So the Gospels are actually reflections of
1: these much later times and the issues that were coming up. Margaret daly Denton, many thanks for that. And Joy Powell, Gina Menzies, thank you for joining me today. Ronan Bratnock, produce. Thank you for listening and have a lovely Easter weekend.
0: Thanks for listening to this News Talk 106 to 108 podcast. To download other programmes or for more information, go to newstalk.ie.